Hey, welcome to the Joyful Courage Podcast, a place for inspiration and transformation as we try and keep it together while parenting our tweens and teens. This is real work, people. And when we can focus on our own growth and nurturing the connection with our kids, we can move through the turbulence in a way that allows for relationships to remain intact. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am your fearless host. I'm a positive discipline trainer, space holder coach, and the adolescent lead at Sproutable. I am also the mama to a 20-year-old daughter and 17-year-old son walking right beside you on this path of raising our kids with positive discipline and conscious parenting. This show is meant to be a resource to you, and I work really hard to keep it real, transparent, and authentic so that you feel seen and supported. Today is an interview, and I have no doubt that what you hear will be useful to you. Please don't forget, sharing truly is caring. If you love today's show, please pass the link around, snap a screenshot, post it on your socials, or text it to your friends. Together, we can make an even bigger impact on families all around the globe. I'm so glad that you're here. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Emily Klein. Dr. Klein is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine. She serves as the director of psychological services for the wellness and recovery after psychosis team and leads the motivational interviewing for loved ones lab at Boston Medical Center. Her research focuses on early course psychosis, adolescent and young adult mental health, and parent-focused interventions. Dr. Klein is the author of The School of Hard Talks, How to Have Real Conversations with Your Almost Grown Kids, and the creator of The School of Hard Talks Online, which I am going to make sure the link is in the show notes. I encourage all of you to check it out. She has published dozens of articles appearing in a range of peer-reviewed scholarly journals, textbooks, and popular magazines. She has spoken with audiences all over the world about mental health and interpersonal communication. Dr. Klein completed her bachelor's degree at Haverford College, her master's and doctoral degrees at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and her clinical and post-doctoral training at Harvard Medical School. She's a smarty. She lives in Boston with her family. And I'm so happy, Dr. Klein, to welcome you to the podcast. Hi. Hi. Wow. What a bio. What a bio. I sound great. (laughs) You do sound great. You do. You sound very knowledgeable. I'm really excited to get into it with you. I heard you on Brenda Zane's podcast, Hope Stream, and it was so validating just to listen to you talking with her about being with our kids that are in addiction, using substances in recovery. And I reached out to Brenda and said, you've got to introduce me to Dr. Klein. I want to talk more with her about motivational interviewing, which is what we're going to get into today. I would love to know what drew you into the work that you're doing. Wow. Okay. Well, what drew me into the work I was doing, you know, I was young, I was a little bit of a lost soul and I got a job as a file clerk at a like sort of day recovery program for adults who were struggling with mental health and substance use disorders. And there wasn't that much for me to file, to be honest, but there was a lot of interesting people around. And the way that that program was set up, like there weren't like little individual offices, it was all very open space. So I just started wandering around talking to the patients and 
I loved it and I didn't want to leave. And I eventually made them hire me, give me a real job. And that started my mental health career. That was like 20 years ago. Yeah. And you work with adolescents. I do. Yeah. So I've been working with adolescents, you know, most of the last, I would say 15 or so years as kind of my specialty. And I am deep in a very, very specific world, which is I work with adolescents and young adults in their families who have just been through like a mental health crisis, often a hospitalization for psychotic disorder, like an episode of bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or drug-induced psychosis. And that feels like a very niche kind of thing. And yet really, really interestingly, you know, we can get into it. I feel like working with that population has given me this insight into like what adolescence is really about. And these families who are so desperate and are in crisis have revealed to me so much about the actual work of parenting young adults and adolescents that I think applies to everybody. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's why I was so excited about that interview that I heard with you and Brenda was because I work with parents of teenagers. And like I said, before I hit record, I understand why so much of the parent coach, parent education industry is really focused on those early years because you get into adolescence and it feels very messy. And as the supporter, as the coach, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I definitely have a role as a guide and a coach for parents. And the stuff that shows up in adolescence feels super scary. I so appreciate the work that you do because right now there just doesn't seem to be enough helpers that are willing to work with adolescents. I, in my own personal experience, you know, being on a six month wait list for a DBT program with my daughter who was in crisis, looking for a right fit for her. So many clients who everywhere they call, it's a wait list, a wait list, or, you know, not all therapists are created equal, right? So they find someone and it just is not helpful. So when my oldest entered into high school and we started to feel the tension of adolescence and I looked for help, I realized I'm not hearing the messy conversations that I need to hear. And so that's why I was like, I guess I'm going to have to have the messy conversations. (laughs) And it is super messy for sure. For sure. What do you love about adolescents and working with teens? I mean, especially considering your work, like these are kids that are really hurting and having a hard time. What gets you going in the morning to head to work every day? Well, I remember my own adolescence as kind of a magical time. You know, I wasn't the coolest kid in high school, but I had such a passion for my friends. You know, we were into cheesy stuff. Like, you know, when you pour your whole soul into listening to your new CD with your best friend, or you have your first love and you're writing poetry. You know, I mean, those are the kind of experiences that you can really only have when you're like 18 Mm -hmm. years old, Mm -hmm. because you feel like you're the first person on earth whoever read a poem or had sex or had a best friend. I mean, these experiences are so intense and wonderful for kids. And it's such a kind of a magical time of feeling out your autonomy and figuring out what kind of person you want to be. But what really gets me going to work in the morning is both just the feeling of responsibility that you have, because I mean, as you say, I know, I know what it's like out there. And then also 
I found that working with the families is really, really gratifying. And especially this kind of vein that I've developed of teaching parents very specific communication skills. Because the fact of the matter is, is that we have pretty good medications and rehabilitation programs for people who are experiencing psychosis, but we cannot cure these disorders. That's a hard fact. We just don't have the science. We're not there. So trying to help people manage their illness can be very rewarding, but it's also always totally uphill. You know what I mean? Like these are sort of unsolved problems and I'm not going in there with a magic wand. I only have the tools that are kind of given to me by the field. And we haven't gotten to the point where we can totally solve these problems for people. But when we reframe the issue, when I'm working with a family and I reframe it as saying, you know, we're not going to talk about curing your kid's schizophrenia today. I don't know how to do that. But let's talk about this communication and how you guys communicate with each other, how you ask your adolescent or young adult to do things at home, like take their medicine or go to therapy or contribute to household chores or go to the cousin's wedding out of state. That I can help you with. I can help you with that a lot. Mm-hmm. And when we reframe the goals around things that feel really achievable, it's really, really exciting for everyone because it's like, oh, this is a mission that can actually be one. Yeah. Well, and I love focusing on communication too, because it feels like when we're not intentional about what we're saying, how we're saying it, like there's the speaking, there's the tone. There's the receiving, there's the funnel of messages that have already happened that are then interpreting what's being said by the teen. Like, you know, it's not simple, right? And I think parents, when they start to understand, we're great perceivers, we're not great interpreters. And adolescents and young kids, like great perceivers, poor interpreters. And then parents feel like, well, they don't want to talk to me. Or, you know, I asked them, I was curious with them and, you know, and they still freaked out or they still resisted. And so talk a little bit more about the communication piece, because, you know, if we're going to hold on to control of something, which controls an illusion as we parents of teenagers are either starting to learn, welcome to the program, or have come to realize. But one thing we can do is we can pay attention to how we are communicating on our side of the street with our kiddos. So talk about how you work with parents around communication. Yeah, exactly. So we cannot control other people. Such a drag. Terrifyingly, this even includes our own children. Because we simply can't, you know, even when the stakes are really high, it's impossible, you know, and by the time your kids are teenagers, they're often bigger than you, you know, even if you wanted to just, you know, just manhandle, mom handle them into the station wagon and take them somewhere like you probably can't. And when it comes to things like, you know, who they're hanging out with, who their friends are, whether they're using substances you know, kids are incredibly sneaky. And so you might set all the rules in the world and somehow they get circumvented. But what we can control is our own approach and we can approach strategically and use skills that are much more likely to have a better result. 
But what's really ironic about that is that if we basically that if you hope to influence your kids behavior around those things, you know, whether they're studying for the test, whether they're trying alcohol, who they're hanging out with after school, if you want to have a say in these things, you will most likely be more successful if you allow yourself to understand that you're not in control and you even allow your kid to understand that you're not in control and that ultimately they have to figure out what they're going to do. I love that. And again, like, it's just so affirming to hear you say that because my own personal growth around being a coach is I like things neat and tidy. I like an hour long call to at the end, have a resolution and like, great, now you got a plan. So go ahead, go forth. And sometimes, well, sometimes that happens, but most often it doesn't happen. And I have a 17 year old, I have a 20 year old, you know, I have all sorts of opinions about how I would love for them to be living their life. Of course, I'm their mom and a controlling mom is not what they need. And I want them to make choices for them versus against me. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think sometimes we get in that dynamic and it's so frustrating for parents, like, they don't realize the consequences of their choices. And it's like, well, the space is set up in a way where it's like, as a teenager, I'm not thinking about the consequences of my choices. I'm just thinking about what an asshole you are, parent, and doing the opposite because screw you. Sometimes I like to watch this little clip with parents from the beginning of Finding Nemo. I don't know if you remember that movie, but you know, Nemo, it's like, his, he's supposed to be a younger kid not even a teenager, but it illustrates what you're talking about so well. Cause he's like, it's his first day of school. And of course, you know, what the parents I work with are really attuned to is, and he has a disability, right? One of his fins works a little differently. And the kids are all daring each other to like swim out past the coral reef into the open water. And Nemo does not actually seem like a risk-taking personality. You know, he's like, oh, I don't know. I shouldn't Mm -hmm. really do that. And then the dad kind of swoops in and is like, don't you dare, you better get back here. I knew you weren't ready for this. And it's in that moment that Nemo, it's just compulsive at that point. He has to prove that his dad is wrong. Yeah. Right. And he's no longer thinking with his actual brain about what he wants. He's only trying to prove his dad wrong. So sometimes I watch that clip with parents and say, you know, of course you don't want your kids to want to prove you wrong. That's just never the kind of attitude that you want to evoke or elicit. And we all have that in us. And especially teenagers really have that in them that, you know, sometimes we do things just to prove that somebody else cannot make us behave a certain way. Yeah. Right. And again, like how much we can set up that dynamic unknowingly. And listen, listeners, we all love our kids. I know you all love your kids and you want them to be, I've started to say content, I mean, a lot of people use the word happy, but to me, I feel like content is the golden ticket, like just to be content. And I want you to talk about motivational interviewing because I talk about curiosity questions a lot on the podcast as a invitation to communication, you know, and then we'll get into like having the patience to hold space for their timeline versus our timeline is another thing I'd like to talk to you about too. But Can you talk a little bit about what motivational interviewing is as a communication tool? Sure. Yeah. 
So motivational interviewing is an evidence-based therapeutic way of talking that was created by psychologists back in the 1980s who were working with patients who had alcohol addiction. And, you know, if you have anybody in your family who's ever had alcohol addiction, one thing you know is that people are really ambivalent. You know, part of them desperately wants to change, but there's another part of them that really maybe needs that addiction or depends on that behavior or just thinks it's going to be way too hard to change. And so they don't want to change. They do want to change and they don't want to change. And that's the definition of ambivalence. So these psychologists found that when they leaned into this ambivalence and they didn't try to be very confrontational or say, you know, they didn't try and influence the ambivalence by saying, you're being an idiot, you're ruining your family's life, you're ruining your own life, your liver has gone to shreds. You know, those kinds of confrontational statements are like what we typically associate with like intervention, right? Right. But they found that people got really defensive when you do that. And actually sometimes the more successful approach would be to just create a very, very non-judgmental space where you are trying to get the patient to think about their own reasons for and against change and try and resolve that ambivalence through the non-judgmental tone you set and the questions that you ask, and also a tone of sort of optimism and confidence that you try and set. So I learned this practice when I was in graduate school, you know, learning to be a psychologist, and I found it incredibly useful in my work with patients with serious mental illness, you know, because we're talking about mostly two behaviors, substance use, and also whether or not to take medicine for Mm -hmm. their problems they're having. Mm -hmm. And motivational interviewing was such a helpful, helpful technique for talking those things through with people. And then, you know, I started thinking about really it was the parents who would often come to me and say, number one, I can't even get my kid to see you. They won't come in and talk to you. I had that conversation many times and it's a real heartbreaker. But the first time I ever had it, really, the ghost of that conversation haunts me to this day heard a variant on this conversation over and over again with parents, or the parents would try and call me up between my sessions and leave a voicemail saying, okay, how do I get them to take a shower? How do I get them to, you know, go to Aunt Sally's wedding next month? How do I get them to join us for dinner? And I thought, wow, these parents actually need to know this skill because it's the only way that I have to talk to people about behaviors where they're ambivalent and they don't want to do it. And maybe deep down, there's a part of them that does want to do it, but they're nervous. And I started thinking about, can I teach the family caregivers, almost always parents of my patients to do this incredibly, incredibly practically useful thing that I do every day. And so I started doing that and I developed this curriculum for parents really of young adults with psychosis. But then people just started finding me not just parents of young adults with psychosis, but just parents Mm -hmm. of teenagers and young adults who were like feeling sad or having friend issues or smoking weed or not doing their homework or just normal teenage stuff. And I started kind of expanding the audience, expanding the audience. So yeah, motivational interviewing is a communication technique that I use and that I teach And that is just a very, very useful set of extremely concrete ways to talk to somebody about change without 
getting that Finding Nemo kind of blowback. Right. This podcast is sponsored by Factor. Are you old enough to remember TV dinners? They came in those tin trays and each part of the meal had its own little compartment. I remember eating those and watching Happy Days, followed by Three's Company, maybe a little Laverne and Shirley. I am that old. Well, the situation has been totally upgraded by Factor. Factor makes delicious, ready-to-eat meals. And unlike those quick meals of the past, every meal from Factor is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including meals that are calorie smart, protein plus, and keto if that's your thing. Also, there's more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. In my last order, we got red chicken chili tamale bowls and Italian sausage pizza casserole, as well as other delicious meals that my family loved. Plus, there's breakfast and smoothies and all sorts of other add-ons to make life simpler while also keeping it healthy. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. They've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Right now, head to factormeals.com slash joyful50 and use code joyful50 to get 50% off. That's code joyful50 at factormeals.com slash joyful50 to get 50% off. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Well, and that's what is so exciting to me. And I've shared in some recent newsletters that I'm doing a workshop right now that is primarily for people that work in recovery and addiction with families. And I'm just so excited to be there because, yeah, it's how do I get my kid to X, Y, Z, right? Like fill in the blank, especially when we're talking about teenagers. I have so many clients that, you know, I know that they need therapy. I can't get them to do it. I know they need this. I can't get them to do this. And, you know, again, back to that Finding Nemo, I've totally forgot about that part of the movie. And it is, it's such a perfect illustration of what can happen. Well-meaning, loving parents, you know, kind of set up the scene for their kids to be engaging in the exact behaviors we don't want them to engage in. So one of the things that shows up 
with some of my clients is around trying and smoking weed. And parents get really scared. You know, it's kind of the continuum. There's parents who have never done any drugs or were not, you know, wild teenagers who are like, oh my God, like this is the worst thing that could happen. And then there's the other extreme who are maybe recovering addicts or at least like did a lot of stuff and are like, oh God, I don't want my kid to make the same mistakes I made. How do I shut this down? And then everyone in the middle. And so talk to me about how motivational interviewing can be supportive. Because I heard what you said. I mean, studies are showing that this is actually more effective in creating positive outcome. Would that be the right language to use? Right, right. Then kind of the idea that we can you know, take the doors off the hinge and lock the windows and, you know, the whole super authoritarian approach of, you know, shut it down, lock them up. Talk about motivational interviewing, just even in this initial, like, oh God, I know my kid is testing this out, trying this out, maybe is using socially. What does motivational interviewing look like for those parents? So I totally agree with you. I mean, a lot of the parents who come, you know, I work with parents who like, they're very knowledgeable, right? So they have Googled a lot and found a lot of good information, but it doesn't mean that you can control the outcome then. You know what I mean? Like we have this kind of delusion that, you know, knowing more gives you more power, which is true in some situations. It doesn't happen to be true in this one. So you can know a lot of facts. You can be like, oh, the THC content in today's, you know, smokable flower indica strains is much higher than it was in the 1980s. You know, and that's like a fact yes. that might make you feel empowered as a parent, like you know something, but it doesn't actually give you more power over your child's behavior. It's just mm-hmm. a fact mm-hmm. in the world. And so motivational interviewing really starts with the idea that your best tool for influence is relationship. So that is my tagline, girl. Okay. I love that. Great. Yes. <laughs> so at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you think. It matters what your kid thinks. And if your kid thinks that you are worth listening to, that you have their best interest at heart and that you know some things about life, they will probably listen to you. They're more likely to. They're likely to, yeah. Or they might still experiment, but they'll have your voice in the back of their head, not in a negative way, in a way that's like, hmm, what would my mom want me to do here? And so, you know, the way this works, like in a doctor's office is, you know, that if I'm saying, oh, you know, I'm smoking weed and I go and talk to a therapist or my primary care doctor about this, and they give me a bunch of pamphlets, you know, saying basically I should stop, but I don't feel like this person really gets me. I don't really feel like that well-connected to them. Probably I'll be defensive Mm -hmm. and I'll just disregard their advice. And I might not want to talk to them again Mm -hmm. because they made me feel kind of bad about myself and made me feel embarrassed about my weed habit. If that person is respectful, wants to get to know me, sees me as an individual, asks questions about my experience, and then maybe perhaps gives me the exact same advice, which is, you know, this isn't good for your brain or, you know, you should consider switching to, you know, lower concentrations or, you know, if you're using this for anxiety, we have other things for anxiety that might be more effective or less harmful to your brain. That person I'm much more likely 
to listen to, even though ultimately the advice was the same, right? It's just sort of how it gets delivered and the context of relationship and respect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I always say to parents, I'm not just saying you can't control your kids and let them make their mistakes. Yeah. Good luck. Right. Like that's not really worth writing a book over. That's not worth conducting a study over. But what I am saying is that, you know, you don't have to change your mind about anything. But if you feel like your kids aren't listening to you and you're frustrated by the tone or the outcome of those conversations, here are some skills you could try next time. So that conversation starts not with, no, 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 you're smoking weed. You got to stop. This is horrible. You know, I like both of your examples, the parent, like I had parents who had never Mm -hmm. done a thing in their lives and were just like so easily scandalized by literally anything. I hope they don't mind me saying that for posterity. I think that's a nice way to put it. So easily scandalized. Yeah, Yeah, they were easily scandalized. So that's my mother's own words, by the way. (laughs) And then there's the parents who have their own history and they're really, really worried because they know their kids may be vulnerable, like substance use disorders run in the family and those kids are vulnerable. And that's scary. But, you know, the conversation either way often starts with, you know, talk to your kids about marijuana is something we hear. And it's like, okay, so you go in and you talk at them Mm -hmm. and you either say, this is really bad. This is going to derail your academic plans or substance use disorders run in our family. And here's what happened to me. And instead I would suggest starting the conversation with like a question, like, what do you know about marijuana? What do your friends think about marijuana? What are people saying about it? Or if you know that your kid has been smoking and you need to talk to them about that fact, just start really briefly with something you've observed or something that you know, like, so you've been smoking weed and just stop talking. Mm -hmm. But the theme is you have to stop talking, ask your question or state your observation and then be quiet so that you have a chance to hear what the other person actually thinks before you launch into advice or rules or, you know, setting expectations. Yeah. So cracking open the door. Right. And I really appreciate the making an observation. I think that, you know, and it's also a practice of coupling it with neutrality. Right. It has to be factual. Nothing you can start arguing about. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that you're smoking weed. And then the child says, I'm not God, get out, closes the door. Right. So you can learn a lot in the next 10 seconds, (laughs) you know, and I teach this to the medical students at Boston University where I teach too. It's like, okay, so if you're on the addiction service and a patient gets sent to you, you say, okay, so you've been referred because you've been, you know, using whatever you've been referred because you have a DUI or you've been using heroin or you overdosed on fentanyl, whatever. Stop talking and you will learn a lot in the next six seconds, which is like either the person will say, oh, I know. Oh my gosh. You know, like let's get into it and I'm embarrassed, but we can talk about it. Or they will do what you just did, which is like, no, I'm not. That's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. Absolutely Mm -hmm. not. And so, you know, you're gathering a lot of information in that moment, even though it feels like the conversation is shutting down. But what you're learning is that they feel judged. They don't want to talk about it. They feel like it's an invasion of your privacy and that they 
Phil, especially like talking about this is not going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And talking about it with you is not going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And that's good information. And, you know, it also is a moment to share some information back, which is maybe I can be helpful. Mm-hmm. But you share that information not by saying it because they're not going to believe you. Just say, no, you should talk to me. I'm great. Like I can. Yeah, I can handle this. But you show it. You know, you don't say it, you show it. You go, okay, you don't feel like talking to me right now. We're going to come back to it later. Mm-hmm. You know, in a very neutral yeah. way. And I know this is like a lot easier said than done, by the way, because it is really hard when it's your kid and you're freaked out. But what you're hoping to convey is I can handle this. Mm-hmm. I can listen. I'm ready to listen now. I'm ready to listen later. Like, but also I'm going to be persistent. I'm going to show up. You know, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, I think that is so key for those of us that have been raised with this kind of behaviorist mindset of if you make a mistake, you get a consequence. That's what you do. Or, you know, reward if you don't make the mistake. And this can feel when you take that away. I mean, that's not what I coach parents towards. And it can feel like a free fall because the illusion of consequences are I am doing something, right? Like I am doing something. And what's hard to recognize, you just highlighted really quietly, but you highlighted it is the actual consequences. I'm going to keep having this conversation with you. Like I am going to be persistent. I'm going to be non-judgmental. I'm going to be neutral. And I'm going to keep bringing this up because it is something that is going to affect your life. And, you know, ultimately our role is to protect the health and well-being of our kiddos. And the best way that we can do that is supporting them with the dialogue that they're starting to develop in their brain. And I think that when you come in with motivational interviewing, or as I call it, curiosity, what happens over time is they're starting to connect dot. They don't realize they're ambivalent while they're ambivalent, right? And so we get to kind of tease that out through questions and the listening, right? Versus like, hey, let me connect the dots for you. It's subtle and it doesn't come with the same like impact, like idea of impact as, well, you're grounded or I'm taking your phone or, you know, whatever other creative thing we can do to our kids in hopes that the next time they're going to think, I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm not going to do this thing, which they're not. It doesn't work like that most of the time. Yeah. I do find that like having limits... It can be a real gift to everyone if there's, you know, expectations and limits, because there's some kids who are going to be deterred by a limit and that's great, you know, like awesome. Well, and tell me what limit means to you. Yeah. Because I feel like it can be kind of elusive when we talk about limits and expectations. So talk about what that means to you. So, you know, any kind of expectation, limit, boundary, consequence, whatever you want to call it is like, you know, to say... I'll just give you an example from something that just happened. I was doing a workshop with some professionals who work with kids, not clinical professionals, but people who work with kids in like various capacities. And one was an after school program director who works with teenagers at a Jewish community center. And she said, I just had this moment with a youth who loves to come to our program, but he came 
high a couple times. And I had to tell him, you know, he's kind of suspended for a week mm-hmm. and it felt horrible. Mm-hmm. And she was kind of asking me, like, did I do the right thing or, you know, how should I have handled this? And I said, well, there's ways that you can talk to him about the limit that you're setting. Doesn't mean that setting the limit is a bad thing. In fact, it might give him a lot of internal motivation to smoke less weed. And that's awesome, mm-hmm. right? To say, mm-hmm. okay, well, you can't have access to this thing you love while you're high. You just yeah. can't. Yeah. We can't do that here. Or, you know, to say, of course, you can't drive if I'm worried that you're drunk or high. That just right. cannot happen. For a lot of kids who are using substances, though, they are lonely. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they have depression, not always, but mm-hmm. sometimes they do. So I'm really careful. You know, I advise parents to be cautious about using consequences that are related to like social isolation. Mm-hmm. You know, because that can really backfire if you take away the phone or if you ground Mm -hmm. someone who's lonely in the first place, like, oh, it can spiral in a bad direction. So anyway, but just putting that out there. But, you know, in the book, I write about how in our adult relationships, we have a lot of expectations, but they're not tied to punishments. We don't try and manipulate the contingencies around other people's behaviors, the way that we do when it's our kid. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you, you know, the example I give in the book is like, if your friend and you have lunch plans and your friend doesn't show up for lunch, you might be upset with her about that. And you might text her or call her and say, Hey, you know, where were you? I was really disappointed. You don't take away her phone. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. Or like if your spouse like, you know, spills something like makes the kitchen a huge mess and doesn't clean up after themselves, you don't cancel their weekend plans. Mm -hmm. You just say like, hey, this was like upsetting to come downstairs and see this mess in the kitchen. Like what happened? Yeah. Um, I don't like that. You know, when we have adult relationships, we accept that, you know, we don't have control over these contingencies. And if we did, it would be weird. Yeah. Right. And so when we're dealing with young adults and even, you know, as we work backwards with teenagers, there comes a point where it doesn't make sense so much to manipulate the contingencies so much as it does to just talk about the behavior and about why it was upsetting and, you know, that it's really not what I want you to do. And it affects me. It affects our family. Please don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not 
my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. To me, a great example of this is the stupid smartphone that we adults really screwed our kids with. And, you know, handing over a smartphone and expecting a 12-year-old to know how to, you know, because well, I trust them. I trust them to use it in the way that we've discussed. Well, that's great. And they're going to make loads of mistakes. And it's designed to lure them in. So, totally. yes, please have some limits and boundaries on that use. And as they get older and more practiced in navigating the smartphone, the limits and the expectations, the space that they have for using it changes. You know, same with driving, same, you know, with just being out in the world and that freedom. I think where it gets really messy is, this has shown up in my house and this has shown up with my clients too, especially when we're talking about substances, when, yeah, the expectation is, I don't want you to smoke weed, right? I don't want you to do that. It hurts your brain. It hurts your brain. And here's all the facts, right? And our house rule is it won't happen here. And then it does, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when parents are like, well, what am I supposed to do? They broke the rules, right? And my suggestion is exactly what you are saying, which is very validating, Dr. Klein which is circling back with them. Like, tell me about this. You know, we've set this expectation. We know that you were using in your room. One of the questions that I loved that I heard from your interview with Brenda was, talk to me about your relationship with weed, mm -hmm. right? Tell me about that. So talk a little bit about the power of drawing forth from our kids when they're making risky, unhealthy choices. So, you know, you can start this conversation by even... Pointing out the obvious, which is, you know what I think about this. Yes. You know what I think. I don't like it. But obviously, what I think is not the most important thing here. What you think matters because you're in control. Yeah. I can't follow you around 24 hours a day. So yeah, let's talk. What's going on? Help me understand. Mm -hmm. You know, what's your relationship with weed? What do you like about it? How long have you been using it? How do you use it? You know, how do you get it? 
You know, if you can Mm -hmm. get this information, then you are like way ahead of the curve. You know, if you can get some of this answers to some of these questions and if things are going well in this conversation, you might at some point hear ambivalence, Mm -hmm. you know, and you have to really be tuned into it sometimes to hear it because your own heart might be racing and you're just like, oh my God, what do I say next? Or I can't believe they're doing this. And so it might not happen all at once is the other thing is that, you know, the good thing about your kids is you'll see them again. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny because I do teach this in the context of like working in an emergency room when you're never going to see this person again. So you have one shot to have the conversation right. with our families. We have infinite shots, right? So you can always come back to it. So it's okay to just listen I was listening to one of your interviews where you say, and I love this, like, it's okay that you are going to blow it. Like a lot of the time you're going to lose your cool and just yell or do whatever you usually do. You will have another chance, Mm -hmm. you know, but if you are tuned in, you might hear something like, well, you know, I like it for this reason, but it's causing this problem. And the problem might be my parents don't like it. You know, so we don't want to remove that as a potential problem. And at the same time, you know, it's a hard needle to thread to be able to be curious and have the conversation, you know, but it might be causing other problems too. Like, you know, my girlfriend doesn't like it or, you know, it's costing me a lot of money Mm -hmm. or I want to do this sport and I know I got to stop smoking because I'm you know, my heart's been racing when I run lately. Yeah. And this is a huge part of the technique is that you're listening for the very unique motivation of the person in front of you. You're not imposing your own ideas about what that motivation ought to be. You know, like you and I are caught up on this idea of, oh, it's hurting your brain. Right. Right. Because I think a lot of us parents are like, we don't want you using this because it's hurting your brain. Totally. But that is probably not something that a teenager is going to be motivated by. It didn't motivate me. That's for sure. (laughs) No, it's not how their brains work. Yeah, not at all. This is just development, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's positives to this. But, you know, kids are like oriented around more short term gains and losses. Your brain being hurt is like a very long term nebulous Mm -hmm. kind of prospect. But they might be motivated around, yeah, it's slowing me down in my sprints. Or I have a crush on this girl and like her group of friends would never. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing. So if you can listen for that, then all of a sudden you might hear some motivation for change and you can echo that back. Like, oh, so you like it because you like the way, you know, that it sparks your creativity but you're worried about what this girl might think if she found out that you've been smoking weed, which of course is very different from what we think, Mm -hmm. why we think they ought to quit, but there it is motivation. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so we kind of restate that and like leave it there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's called a reflection and it kind of blows people's minds. And like, it's funny because I'm not a behaviorist, You know, I don't like creating rewards and consequences around every behavior, but I am behavioral in that I believe in fake it till you make it. I really do. Mm -hmm. And reflections are the best way to fake it till you make it when you're attempting to kind of have this type of conversation. 
Because when your kid comes at you with something that you're like, what? The best thing you can do is just repeat it back. And yes. you can even use little training wheels, which is like, so it sounds like you think marijuana helps you do your math homework, mm-hmm. right? Instead of getting into an argument about like, that makes no sense, right? that can't possibly be right. When you hear something that blows your mind and you're like, what the heck are you talking about? Just repeat it back. And that's mm-hmm. called doing a reflection and then stop talking. Yeah. And usually people love a good reflection. It makes them feel so good. It makes them like, wow, this person's really listening to me. Mm-hmm. This person really gets me. Well, and it sounds like too, we are listening. Like that is what's yeah, happening. Yeah, absolutely. To that's hear true. that, to capture, to see and feel like this is the thing to reflect back on. We are listening and we are seeing our kiddo. And I think when we go in with like the idea that we all want to believe that we know our kids so well, and on some levels we do. And then there's this whole inner world that we do not know. We are not privy to. We have to be invited in, right? And I think this is such a respectful opportunity to say, I can be let in and I won't cause total havoc in your internal experience. Right, right. You know, there's like that stereotype of like the mother-in-law who comes in and rearranges the furniture every time she visits, right? And so it's a way, like you're saying, of sort of metaphorically entering the mental space of someone who's younger and has less power, but say, I'm just gonna, you know, look around. I'm gonna treat this space with respect. I'm not gonna you know, tell you that it's wrong or that you need to change everything. I'm just peeking around. And there really is no better way to build relationship than just to listen. And if you're not sure how to just listen, do reflections. It's the first step in just sort of retraining yourself away from doing and fixing and correcting Mm -hmm. and instead just listening. And again, not to say that we don't want to give advice, that we don't want to push our kids, but, you know, it has to be offered when things are like in a good energetic space, right? Like you can't come out of this kind of angry place of like, what? Because probably kids are not that likely to listen, but they're quite likely to listen actually. If you're curious about their perspective and you want to know what's motivating them. Yeah, I love that. And thinking about who my favorite people are to talk to and the qualities that they bring to our conversations You know, listeners, I encourage you to think about who the people are in your life that you open up to and why do you open up to them and then use them as a model as you work to strengthen and develop relationship with your teen. And if it's tough right now, and you all have heard me say this, I say this a lot, you know, when we're getting totally shut out, to me, that's a relationship red flag right? That's an indicator of, I don't trust that this is a safe space for me to tell you what's going on in my life. So I'm not going to, right? So the work being around building relationship and shifting that belief with your teen, which can be a brutal path (laughs) over time. And we get to, like you said, be consistent, be persistent, keep showing up and be consistent in our come from, you know, I care more about you than I do about your grades. I care more about you than I do about 
your friend group and showing that and how you're showing up to conversations is so key. Oh my gosh. I can't believe that it's been an hour. I have so much more that I want to talk to you about, Dr. Klein. So I'm going to invite you back on one day. Is there anything else that you want to just for today, make sure that you land for listeners before we wrap up? No, just that I'm a person and I know it's hard. And yeah, feel free to invite me back. Like when I'm in the thick of it with my own kids who are like elementary school now and, you know, see how I'm doing with all this, because (laughs) I know it's like, it's a lot easier said than done. Yeah, it is. And I'm so glad that there are helpers like you out in the world working with families. Listeners, you have got to go on Dr. Klein's website and check out her online class, School of Hard Talks, as well as making sure you get your hands on her book that just came out a month ago. I am going to get my hands on it. I'm really excited. I always end my podcast with this question, which is what does joyful courage mean to you? What a beautiful question. I mean, I think as I advance in my own life, in my own career, it's having the courage to do something that feels meaningful and fun and impactful and to kind of follow the random callings that seem to come rather than sort of stay on a certain path forever. So I guess that's what it means to me is trying to stay aware and open to possibilities in my own life, even if I thought this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do forever. Love it. Tell us your website and where we can find you on socials and all the places. My website is Dr. Emily Klein, D-R-E-M-I-L-Y-K-L-I-N-E.com. And then I have an Instagram where I kind of act out some of the skills or we suggest like conversation starters for different topics. And I say we, because I run it with some of my students at BU Awesome. and they're like card carrying college students. So they're very young and they keep it real. It's called learn about Milo, M-I-L-O, which stands for motivational interviewing for loved ones. Learn about Milo on Instagram and TikTok. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. This was super useful and I can't wait to be in conversation again. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you for the work you do. Thank you so much for listening in today. Thank you to my Sproutable partners, as well as Chris Mann and the team at Podshaper for all the support with getting this show out there and making it sound good. Check out our offers for parents with kids of all ages and sign up for our newsletter to stay connected at besproutable.com. Tune back in later this week for our Thursday show, and I'll be back with another interview next Monday. Peace. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, 
Life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.